Well, good morning. You made it. I'm pretty impressed. It's a challenge following us sometimes. Um, I have to ask you to stay seated. I know it's tempting to jump up and dance, but you'll save it for next Sunday. Are we in next Sunday? Yeah. yeah. Shower, run a while straight into your arms. Oh, oh, I know you never let me go. I wanna live unashamed, shout your name from the highest mountain. Oh, oh I know you never let me go. Oh, 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 I know you never let me go so heaven come to this place open the floodgates i'm reaching for the rhythm my father song shake my soul with the sound i feel it hot now i'm dancing the rhythm my father song
Lord, thank you that your love for us is good and that it's strong. And that's not by our faith and our strength that we can come to you, but it's by Jesus. I pray that we'd rest in you, in your grace, in your truth, in your goodness. And whatever is keeping us back from you, whatever we're pretending to do, that we would give it up and we give it back to you. We love you and we thank you so much. Amen. Amen. I'll tell you, I, I, love, I love being out here. But I, I love worshiping with you guys out here. This is, it's just amazing. I hope the neighbors like it, because we always turn it up loud enough for them to hear. I'm going to do this. It won't go that way. Just in case that's where my weirdness was coming from. Not my weirdness. <laughs> I, I know exactly where my weirdness is coming from. Okay. All right. By the way, the music sheet that you got, uh, many, many uses for this, but trash on the ground is not one, but many uses. I see many of you have already discovered it can be a fan. It can be, you can make a hat with it. Um, you can also know when the outdoor or other types of services are. It kind of says that. That is along with the card, if you didn't get one, we have our, I know you can't see this. I could be holding up my driver's license. It really doesn't matter. This is the summer at JNC schedule. We have a lot of different things going on. Um, but we do have something coming up on July 17th I want you to be aware of. If you didn't get a card, there's some of these in the back too. There's going to be a picnic at Bob and Bethany's house. Uh, Bob and Bethany, wave. I don't know where you ended up. Right there, right there. Um, 
They're going to have a picnic at their house on the river, and there's going to be all kinds of games and fun stuff at 4 p.m. on July 17th. You don't want to miss that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Everybody's invited. Um, we'll see how many we can fit there. It'll be good. All of them. Everybody. Everybody. Um, it's nice to be able to be out here. Um, I know that it's, it's getting a scooch warm, so I, I will go quickly. Um, but at the same time, um, it's not like the last outdoor service we tried to have where it was pouring rain the entire time. So we are very gracious, gracious to God for what he has done for us. So I don't know how, I don't know many of you, I don't know many of your backgrounds or how you grew up. Um, I grew up, uh, my family and the church I went to, I would say I grew up a little bit religious. When you grow up religious, it's easy to love your religion more than you love people. It's easy to hurt people with your religion and then wonder why they don't want to be a part of your religion. What we've been doing is we're following Jesus this summer from his introduction to the world until he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. He came to introduce something new, not to continue something old. He came to do something brand new in the world and for the world. See, Jesus, it's all about Jesus. He came and he ushered in a new covenant. Things had been going along the same way for thousands of years, and Jesus said, what I'm bringing is brand new. We have a new covenant. He ushered in a new command. He took the 600 and some commands along with the 3,000 and some rules, and he said, yeah, I can narrow it down to two. Love God and love people. He actually, at the end, assumed we love God and says, you know what? Love people. He also ushered in a new movement, something that would be totally different than what preceded it. So we're taking this road trip, making these stops along with it. And previously on a road trip, Jesus introduced and revealed his agenda. In Matthew 5, 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish. That means to change, to amend, to reinterpret them. He says, I've not come to abolish but, you see, at the same time, he's letting them know, I've not come to abolish, but change was coming. The tension that they felt was real. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus came to finish them. If it was an assignment, we said this last week, he's completing it. If it's a math problem, he's solving it. If it's a plane, he came to land it. It says in Matthew 7, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. That's what they recognized that. That's what impressed them, that he wasn't just teaching like their teachers. He was teaching like he had authority. But how much authority did he have? Was it enough to replace everything that was in place? and had been put in place, you know, by Moses and by Solomon. That brings us to the next stop on our road trip. We're kind of pulling off the road and we're going into a field for this stop, which is very appropriate since we're in a field. So timing couldn't be better. In Matthew 12, it says, at that time, and this was at this specific time, Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He was following his father's will. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his followers are going from place to place, ministering, healing people, teaching. 
They went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. So you get the picture. They're walking through a grain field. They're hungry. It's like, look, we can pick the heads of wheat and eat them. I don't know if that's gluten-free or not, but... The Pharisees saw this because they are now watching everything Jesus does. When the Pharisees saw this, he said to them, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. They're not allowed to do that. Because the Pharisees had taken the Sabbath laws and they had, they had added their interpretations to them. They added their rules to it. And they said, No, when you picked the head off that grain, you were harvesting. And you're not allowed to harvest on the Sabbath. And then when you got rid of the stuff, um, you, you, that was like doing the, the threshing thing. You can't do that. And so it's interesting because um, Matthew says something we're going to get to in a second, but Mark is telling the same story. He's going over the same story. And one of the things Jesus said to them was, to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, you think God loves his law? more than his people? They prioritized the law over people. You realize that's the essence of legalism. When you prioritize the law over people, legalism prioritizes a view over a you. What they interpret, their view, what they believe is more important than the people. And I know I've talked to many people who have left the church or are thinking about leaving the church, not like our church, but the church. And I know that many have left the church because somebody, somebody prioritized their interpretation of the law over like, you know, your divorced parent or your rebellious sibling or whatever, that their interpretation of the law was more important than the people were. Throughout the gospels, Jesus introduced this. So don't miss this. When people used the law of God to dishonor people who were made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God when they did that. Jesus gave them some examples in this story here um, concerning their temple law from the Old Testament. We're not getting into that right this minute. But when Jesus finishes with those examples of the temple's law, temple law, here's what I see him doing. He kind of pauses and he smiles and he leans in. And he whispers to them the unimaginable. We miss this. It's like he's saying, speaking of the temple, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And the way he said that was something greater than the temple is here. To compare yourself with the temple was arrogance or ignorance, or probably in their mind, insanity. It was certainly blasphemy. To say you're greater than the temple was a threat to the temple. It was a threat to the whole nation. Because at that time, they would die in order to protect that sacred piece of real estate. To give you a little bit of idea, our, our property, that woods down there is in our property. And the camera's not going to pan over there, so you just had to be here live to see what I'm pointing at right now. Oh, look! No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but where the trees come together, it goes all the way on the other side of that the thing. I think it's like 32-ish acres. The temple, that building, encompassed about 37 acres. The building itself 
It housed the law of God, where God dwelled. It was the epicenter of their worship. It was the epicenter of their entire world. And the people would die before allowing that sacred real estate to be desecrated. Here's an illustration of that. Seven years after Jesus said what he just said, in A.D. 40, citizens of Jerusalem, they found out that a statue of Emperor Gaius Caligula, the Roman emperor, because he thought he was divine, he thought he was pretty amazing, he was going to set up a statue of himself within the temple walls. It's like, well, if they can worship their God, I should be there too, you know? So they found out that he had this statue coming and it was going to be set up within the temple walls. Petronius, the governor of Syria, of that region, was responsible for transporting it from the coast to Jerusalem. And he had two legions of the Roman army to help. A legion is like 4,500 to 5,000 men. He had two legions of the Roman army to help. And so he arrives, he's got this statue, he's pretty sure, no problem here. And when he arrived, he was met by thousands of protesting Jews. When they were threatened with violence from all these Roman soldiers, get out of the way or die, they knelt and exposed their necks to the Roman blades. Petronius had a really difficult time, but he kind of wormed around them. He eventually made his way inland to Tiberias. When he got there, he encountered larger crowds. First century Jewish historian Josephus, in his writings, Antiquities of the Jews, he writes this. He describes this scene this way. So they threw themselves down on their faces. He actually watched them do this. They threw themselves down on their faces and stretched out their throats and said they were ready to be slain. And they blocked his way for 40 days. So he has a problem now. Petronius has a problem. He's got to get this statue there because the emperor Caligula is not a, a reasonable person. Um, and everything was going wrong. The farmers were going on strike. The economy was in jeopardy. Petronius wrote the emperor asking for advice, which was a, a risk because failure to deliver the statue meant he would probably pay with his life for his incompetence, but he had to get the guy in the loop. In a twist of fate, the Roman senators at that moment conspired with the Praetorian Guard and had Caligula assassinated before Petronius's letter reached them. So the statue never came, the statue was never put up, it's just kind of the way that it worked. Jesus said, as much as they loved the temple and would die for that, Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. This was impossible. You, you, you get a picture of how big that temple was. This was the renovated second temple. The first temple that Solomon built was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., which has a lot to do with prophecy as well. The Persian emperor Cyrus the Great later allowed them to return and rebuild like 516 or something BC, but he didn't want it so big that it caused trouble again, and then so they built an econo-sized temple back then. And that went on for approximately 500 years, 20 years before Jesus was born. Herod the Great decided that he needed something that would get him in good with the Jewish people and that he wanted something that his name would be attached to that would be pretty cool. And so he, he worked with them and he figured out, they, they went back and forth and finally agreed, and he rebuilt this temple to the magnificent scale that it was at that time, this gigantic place. The entire temple, it actually took up about a third of the entire old city of Jerusalem. The entire thing was made of um, 
stone, cut stone. They would cut the stone and get it there. I don't know how they did this, but some of the stones measured. Now, this trailer, I don't know, what is this trailer? 20, 22, 24 feet, something like that. You had to use your imaginations. It, twice as long as this trailer, 44 to 55 feet. Twice as long as this trailer. 11 feet high were some of the smaller, larger ones. So we're about three feet up. This is eight. So that's about 11 feet. So you got twice the length of this trailer. You got that high. And oh, it was more than 16 feet wide. So that whole thing times two. That was one stone. 500 to 600 tons. One stone. Could something be greater than the temple? That was impossible. So one afternoon, um, as they were leaving the temple, Jesus and his disciples, they'd been in there doing what they do. You know, they go in there and they teach and they talk to people. And as they were leaving, they're walking through that portico area where they're seeing these stones, these gigantic stones, twice the length and width of this, 11 to 15 feet high. They're seeing this thing made out of these giant stones. They're walking on some of them. And as they come out, one of the disciples said something. It doesn't tell us which one it says, but I'm pretty sure it's Peter because whenever there's talking, it's usually Peter. And he says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And I see them walking out of the temple and looking at it. And it's like, it didn't matter how many times they visited it. It would just evoke this awe as they would see it. And he says, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. I love the way Jesus responds. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, well, of course they did. They just asked him about it. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The literal translation of thrown down means thrown and pushed over the edge into the valley below. Every stone. So that hushed them up a little bit, but I can see them kind of waiting for the punchline. Okay, what, 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 do you, what do you mean by that? And Jesus just keeps walking. It's like he's saying, you know, don't be too impressed. It's all coming down. It's all coming down. And they're thinking impossible. That's impossible. Although the area was kind of prone to earthquakes, an earthquake might shift a few stones. It might crack a few stones. One of the towers might, you know, have an issue or something. But it ain't taking this building down. And then they say, thrown down? That would take a force that the most powerful force they knew of at that time was the Roman army. That would take a force equal to the Roman army. And if that happened, that would be so troubling. That would be so scary, so apocalyptic for them. Because the end of the temple signaled the end of the world as they knew it. And they didn't feel fine. So later, some of you got that. Some of you have no idea what that was. Here's what Jesus says. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple. So here's the picture. You got Jerusalem and the temple occupying a third of old Jerusalem. This gigantic structure up on the hill. It's about 2,700 feet above sea level. And you come down into the valley. You come up the other side where the Mount of Olives are. I absolutely can't back up more than a foot. Now I want to try it. They're sitting on the other side. The elevation is only about 100 feet different. So they're looking across this valley at this amazing city and temple and they're seeing this and they're remembering that Jesus just said not one stone will be left on another every one will be thrown down 
into this valley that we're looking at. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the first four disciples that Jesus called when he said, come follow me, they asked him privately because they were kind of like part of that inner circle. They asked him privately, tell us, when? When will these things happen? And Jesus told them. It was a little more complicated than just, you know, in X number of years. But there was a near future fulfillment of this. There, there was some far future things that come into this prophecy too. But when Jesus told them the answers, he wasn't apologetic. He wasn't like really nostalgic. Oh, the temple's going. He wasn't nostalgic because the temple era was ending. It was finally coming to an end. The world as they knew it was literally going to come to an end for them. Forty years later, that's what happened. There had been a rebellion. There had been this siege of Jerusalem, and they were protecting it, and they weren't gain, the Romans weren't gaining any ground. The, 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 the Jewish people were holding their ground, and Rome finally said, that's it, we're done. They sent in the 10th legion, overran it. They breached the second wall. Incredible massacre. The number of people who were killed. Basically, if they couldn't take you for a slave, you were probably killed. And they burned everything that would burn. And the heat and the light from that was immense. And what didn't burn, the stones, they literally tore the temple to its foundation and shoved those big cut stones off the plaza ledge into the valley below. You can Google that and see a picture of those stones still there, laying there. And we know also from some of the historians that wrote, the temple was um, overlaid outside. It, it was overlaid, much of it, with gold. And on the inside, there was a whole bunch of gold overland leaf and statues and silver. They hadn't gone all the way up on the outside, and it was made out of this cut white stone. And some of the historians that saw it said, when you saw the old temple, it looked like a snow-capped mountain because you had this incredible color and then you had the white on top and the heat from burning everything in the city that would burn was so intense that all the gold melted and went in the cracks. And they literally tore every stone, flipped over every stone to get the gold out of the cracks. And when Jesus said not one stone will be left unturned, it happened exactly as he said. So around 700 A.D., fast forward about 700 years, the Muslims came and built the Dome of the Rock there. They built the Al-Aqsa Mosque around that same time right there. That was destroyed by earthquakes and rebuilt twice. In 1099, on that location, the Crusaders retook the city and turned the mosque into a church. 88 years later, the Muslims took it back. It's gone back and forth. Here's the point. Ancient Judaism was never resurrected. From that moment on, it was over. It was replaced by rabbinic Judaism. They couldn't sacrifice in the temple. There was no temple. Not one stone here will be left on another, Jesus said. Every one will be thrown down. The church fathers, if you need to know who the church fathers are, you know, the disciples that followed Jesus, you know, they became sent ones, they became apostles. Um, uh, most of them were martyred, but as they died, the ones who took their place as leaders, we kind of know as the church fathers, the ones who, the next round of leadership, they talked about this all the time. They were quick to make the same point I'm making. See, this happened just like Jesus said. 
you read their writings, how could they resist writing about this, editorializing? Uh, they wrote decades after this happened. They, how could they resist adding to what they had written, things like, and so it came about just as Jesus said it would. How could they resist telling something this epic? I mean, I read this, you talk about proof. There was more verifiable prophecy for them because they were on the other side of the resurrection. The things that were prophesied had come true. Why didn't the gospel writers leverage this? Why didn't they say anything about this? Why didn't they talk about how, see, Jesus said this and it happened? If it's so verifiable, here's why. And don't miss this. This is verifiable too. When the Gospel of Mark was written, the temple was still standing. When the Gospel of Matthew was written, the temple was still standing. When the Gospel of Luke was written, the temple was still standing. It hadn't happened yet. But it did happen. Just as Jesus said it would, not one stone will be left here and another. Every one will be thrown down. They didn't write about it because it hadn't happened yet. We know when they wrote, we know that that's significant prophecy. For me, that's enough to say, okay, fall down, worship Jesus. He's the one. He's God. Look at what he said and did. He said, all of this is going away. And it was going to be replaced by something, something new, something improved, something that was universal, not just for one nation, something that was portable, not tied to one specific, you know, section of real estate. Twenty years after Jesus said this, while the temple was still standing, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was an ex-temple-loving, Christian-persecuting Pharisee, was writing to ex-pagans in Corinth, people who had a whole lifetime of temple experience because they had their temples too. They all worshiped in their temples at that time. And he's saying to them, do you not know that your bodies, and it's like, do you know or not know? He's saying this because they really didn't know. In 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies, this was a game changer for them, that your bodies, your physical bodies, are temples. Something's changed. Something new has come. He said that your physical bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, it was going to be another 20 years before the temple was torn down. It was still there. And he could very easily have said, your physical bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, that same spirit that used to inhabit the Holy of Holies. That building that he could have said, the one that's still standing there in Jerusalem, it's no longer inhabited by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has left the building. And it inhabits now the hearts of men. And it inhabits the hearts of women. You have been inhabited, he writes, by the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. Now it's easy for us to realize this and have the gravity of this statement lost on us. But it was mind-blowing. It was loaded with implication for the ex-pagans and for the Jewish believers that everything was centered around a temple, which was a building. But with the arrival of Jesus, the sacred has been switched. The sacred has been swapped. There is no more sacred sites. There is no more sacred objects. No more sacred geography. Only sacred individuals. You know what that means? You're seated next to the sacred. 
You're married to sacred. No chuckling or elbowing. You are raising sacred. The person that waits on you in the restaurant is sacred. The person in that car ahead of you that's driving you crazy because they're not passing and they're in the left lane. That was extra. I just added that to let you know that that's bad. Don't do that, okay? That person's sacred. We forget that. The stage was set now for turning society upside down. You realize that when this happened, when Jesus said this, when Jesus, when what he did came to pass, it turned the world upside down. Because the seeds were now sown for an end to slavery. The seeds were sown for the dignity of all humankind, men and women alike. There was an inseparable link between the message of Jesus and human freedom. The link is made between human dignity and the cross. The price he paid to declare the worth and value of every person. I know some people say, I just, I, I can't believe God loves me. I just don't know how, you know, I don't think God loves me. And what I tell them every time is, look at the cross and see Jesus there with his arms stretched open wide. And he's saying, I love you this much. I love you enough that I don't want to live without you. I want to provide a way that we can spend eternity together in heaven. That's how much he loves you. The cross shouts how much he loves you. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And something greater had truly come into the world. As he predicted, the temple came down 40 years later. It came down along with all the other temples throughout the Roman Empire because the life and light of God had come into the world and for the world. And it changed everything. And since we're on a road trip, we'll talk about an intersection. Here's where this intersects for me. Here's where this intersects for you. What Jesus asked, his invitation, as it stood before the temple came down, how much more powerful now that the temple has come down and it's demonstrated that he is who he said he is. Do you know, Jesus' original invitation still stands. Before the resurrection, that invitation was extended. How much more significant now after the resurrection that it is still extended to us? And the invitation is simply this. Follow me. That's what Jesus said. Follow me. And you'll find life that is truly life. Life to the full. Follow me, Jesus says. Not just because of faith, but because I've demonstrated who I am. I've demonstrated that I'm faithful. Follow me. Why wouldn't you do that? Why would you resist that? Why would someone fear that? To follow the one who is truly greater. So how about it? Will you follow him? Maybe you've never taken that first step to follow Jesus. It's been about religion for you. It's not about religion. It's about Jesus and a relationship with God through Jesus. 
That's what Jesus offers when he says, follow me. I know many people have accepted that invitation and they followed Jesus, but as they followed him, he's kind of gone this way and they've kind of gone this way and they're back into their religious stuff again. And Jesus is like, come on, follow me, follow me. Maybe it's time for you to get back on the road behind him and follow him. I'd like to close this part with a word of prayer. Father, there are so many things there are so many things that uh, people brought here with them. The, the hurts, the burdens, the cares, the concerns. My prayer, Father, is that we would be able to just lay those down like we sang about. That we would be able to clearly see you standing there saying, follow me. And for those who are, whether they're here in person, whether they're watching this online, that they've not taken that first step to follow Jesus. They would realize today he is who he said he was. He loves us more than we could ever imagine and he died to pay for our sin. That in simple faith, we can follow him. We can believe him. We can receive him as Savior. We can turn our life over to him and we can see him change us from the inside out. That today they would say yes to you. And for those who have already taken that step and are following you but might have gotten off the path a little bit, I pray that today we would get back in step with you. That we would see that it is simply about following you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over mighty river, your grace a raging sea, your mercy knows no measure as it crashes over. Your love is one. Your love of mine. Your grace a raging sea. Your mercy knows no measure. As it crashes over me. Your love is wild. Your grace 
It's a lot longer running up here. Jesus said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Truly greater. Is that who you're following? Because it's not about religion. It's not about, uh, about all of that stuff. It's about Jesus. Is that who you're following? The cross proves and shows how much he loves us. Next week, next week, we are, I, I, here it is, July 18th and 25th, the next two weeks, 9 and 10.30 in person or online. So since we're in person or online, if you have not dropped off your baby bottle yet for the Pregnancy Resource Center fundraiser, make sure you drop that off at church so we can get those into them. Um, and kind of just a heads up, um, August 1st, weather permitting, Lord willing, there will be a baptism service at the beach. So if you want to be baptized, make sure you contact us if you have questions and we can get together on that and let you know what's going on. And don't forget, Saturday, it's Saturday, right? The 17th, July 17th. Picnic at Bob and Bethany's at 4 p.m. There's cards at the back like this. You can get to make sure you have it. the address on it so that you can find it. And let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us a beautiful day out here. We do thank you, too, for this property. But most of all, Father, we thank you for the people. We know that that's what you came for. And we just ask, Father, that we would be a congregation that loves God well and loves people well. And that we wouldn't be known for the fighting. We wouldn't be known for what we're against. We wouldn't be known for all of the other controversies. That we would be known for the fact that we love God and we love people. We thank you, Father, for all that you have provided. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.